the supply and demand model with a supply curve and a demand curve. And the idea that in a competitive market, you, you lead to an equilibrium, which is the best, best possible outcome. Now, this is anyone who teaches first year economics knows this is just a fiction. Welcome back to the Empire's New Clothes, the show where we discuss the forces that make and break empires. I'm your host, Brad from MacArthur. We're speaking with James Kwok today. He's a professor at the University of Connecticut School of Law, and he writes about cultural politics in the US. Today, we dive into his book, Economism, which I'll let him explain for you. Just as a quick reminder, I got a quick request for you. If you like what we're doing here, if you could please share our show with one person, it would make all the difference. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy. James, welcome. Thanks for coming on this morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, looking forward to it. Um, so you've you've done a lot of work in the greater world of economics. You've written some books, and um, perhaps for our listeners, before we dive into economism and some of your other ideas, maybe give us a bit of a background of like who's James? How'd you get interested in all this stuff? And um, what's kind of the trajectory of your career so far? Okay, so I've come kind of a, a roundabout way. After college, I went to graduate school. I got a PhD in intellectual history. And for reasons not worth going into, at the end of, of graduate school, after my PhD, I went into the business world. And I was a management consultant at uh, McKinsey for three years, um, which has become much more controversial now than it was then, but I'll just go on. <laughs> uh, my last client was a software company. This is during the first internet bubble of 99, 2000. Uh, they offered me a job. I took it. The internet bubble collapsed. And then some friends and I started a, another software company in 2001 called Guidewire. So I was in the business world for another seven years. And eventually I got somewhat tired of it. There are many things about business I found very interesting, but I felt like it was the same thing all the time. And so I went to law school. I started law school when I was 39. And while I was wow. in law school, the financial crisis of 2008 happened. And I started blogging uh, with my co-author, Simon Johnson. And we wrote a lot about finance and the financial crisis and what was going on and what you know we felt the government should do to address the financial crisis, most of which uh, the, the government did not do. But, um, after, <laughs> but I, I became interested in, in finance and banking and, and economics, uh, mainly then. I had, to, I had studied a lot in the 1990s. And then um, Simon and I wrote uh, our first book, 13 Bankers, about the financial crisis in 2000, 2010. After law school, I became a professor at the University of Connecticut Law School, which is where I am now. And I teach business law, I teach corporate finance. And I've continued to, to write articles and books about the intersection of economics and public policy and the law, and increasingly, increasingly about, um, I guess, about contemporary American politics, because... I think as a lot of people who write about policy have figured out, you can have lots of ideas about what the government should do, but they generally run aground on the, the shoals of our political system, which has uh, you know, many, many flaws, which we can talk about later. So that's what I've yeah. been over the past couple of decades. That's a pretty cool trajectory. So what is intellectual history? Maybe everyone knows this and I don't, but... It, so in the past, it basically meant the history of ideas. So you know, Plato, Aristotle, et cetera, all the way down to the present. And um, 
So more recently, it's been more about the history of, you might call it the history of ideas in society or the history of culture. So studying how the, the interrelationship between ideas and ideologies and our society and, and our political system. So the suggestions that you had for the government in leading up to the uh, great financial crisis, in retrospect, when you think about those suggestions now with hindsight of knowing what happened, um, were they good suggestions? Would you still be suggesting the same things if you knew someone would be listening? Uh, yes, I would. And I think because basically what Simon and I argued, which we were not the only ones, was that the government needed to take a more aggressive role towards the banks that had played a central role in, you know, in pumping up the housing bubble and then allowing it to collapse. And so we felt we that was our opinion for economic reasons. We felt like that was the best way to reset the financial system and have a healthy financial system going forward. I think that was true. I think in addition, um, there was also a political dimension, which has become increasingly apparent over the past decade, which is that I think it's quite obvious that the rise of President Trump and um, everything he stands for is partly, um, at least partly due to disillusionment over the government and particularly the government's role in responding to the financial crisis. So there's a widespread perception, which is to some extent true, that um, the federal government in 2009 elected to bail out large banks, protect essentially rich people uh, and shareholders, and did not do what it could for ordinary people, such as homeowners or something like seven, I don't know, millions and millions of foreclosures that didn't have to happen. And I think that bitterness at the government's willingness to bail out the elites and abandon ordinary people is one of the things that has fueled the rise of President Trump. So I think I think the decisions that were made in 2009, while I, while I understand why they were made, I think they were wrong both economically and in the long term politically as well. Okay, interesting. I think we'll be getting into that a little more. Um, before we do, how about explain, your, you wrote a book called Economism, and it seems like it's framing the idea that there's varying scales of understanding of economics. And there's this issue where people in power and decision-making are using some very simplified versions of economics to make very large and impactful decisions. Perhaps maybe explain a little bit more yeah. of like, why did you write that book and how exactly is, it, is this impacting us in our day-to-day? Sure, exactly. I think you, you captured the spirit of the book very well. I wrote it because one of the things that I observed a lot during the financial crisis and its aftermath was a tendency for many people, certainly many conservatives, also many people in the Obama administration to say, look, we have to do what we, ha- what we have to do because it is just the laws of economics. Um, the econ- laws of economics overrule whatever scruples you may have about equality and inequality and distribution and redistribution and fairness. We just have to follow the laws of economics. And I found that very disturbing. Actually, I should say this went back to the lead up to the financial crisis, which is that, as everyone knows, um, the financial crisis was in part a product of a huge wave of deregulation in the 1990s and 2000s. And that deregulation was based on this very simplistic idea that if you remove restraints on financial markets, there'll be more innovation, um, and only good things will happen. 
and we saw what happened. So economism is a bit, it's a bit of an intellectual history, and it's a bit a, a history and analysis of how that viewpoint came to be and how it became so influential in the United States. So as you said, it does talk about different ways of understanding economics. And basically, you can, I mean, to, to, to put it simply, there are certain models that everybody learns in their first semester of economics, most notably the supply and demand model with a supply curve and a demand curve. And the idea that in a competitive market, you, you lead to an equilibrium, which is the best, best possible outcome. Now, this is anyone who teaches first year economics knows this is just a fiction. It's a simplistic fiction, which has a certain pedagogical value, which is why people start with it. But people who go on to study economics, get PhDs, become professors, they know very well that these models are only a very distant approximation of the real world. And in mm -hmm. fact, to be a successful economist, most of what you do is, is figure out, is discuss, analyze situations in which the models break down. But what the book is about and what I call economism is the tendency of many people to take these simplistic ideas as gospel. Um, so for example, the, the one that's easiest to talk about is the idea that if you increase the minimum wage, you will necessarily increase unemployment, which is a something that I could, you can show to someone on a napkin. Uh, you, can show, you can show the logic behind it on a napkin. And as I discuss in the book, I think there are you know, basically two sets of reasons why people uh, can adopt these positions. One is that they might believe them, but the other is that these positions are very useful to certain interest groups. So again, to go back to the minimum wage example, if you read an op-ed against the minimum wage, it will probably say something like, if you increase the minimum wage, uh, businesses have to pay more for workers and they may not want to pay more for the workers, so they will lay them off instead. That's one thing you can count on. And the second thing is that often this op-ed will be written by somebody affiliated with a think tank that is funded by the restaurant industry because the restaurant industry survives on low wage labor. So these ideas are kind of intellectually persuasive, especially to people who are not familiar with economics and they serve the interests of certain large corporations and, and rich people. So I think that confluence of the ideas and the interest groups they serve is why they have become so influential in American politics and society. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is a difficult question to ask, but how much is it us as people wanting simple answers to our world, which can be quite chaotic and you know we all have lives and we somewhat want to simplify things into easy understand easy understandable narratives and how much is it pushed by interest groups who are progressing their agenda as you kind of just alluded to yeah that's that's a great question i mean i think this is actually something that people talk about in intellectual history and the history of ideas so do ideas become influential just because they're good ideas or because people um because there's an interest group behind the ideas or to what extent are they do they appeal to um, appeal to the needs of, of the population, of people listening to the ideas. And I think you're right that, it, that it's both. I think that this is a bit beyond my, you know, beyond my pay grade, but I think that in different eras of history, there are different kind of explanatory models that, that are persuasive. So just to give one example, like in late 19, the late 19th century, if you were in the labor movement in Europe or the United States, 
um, communism was a persuasive model. It said, you know, history is driven by class struggle, and what matters is the ownership of the of the means of production. And right now, the bourgeoisie owns the means of production, but there are certain inexorable laws that will cause the proletariat to essentially take over, right? And as we know, that's that as a model of history and of society, that model is deeply flawed. Uh, but it it appeals certainly to the to the consciousness of the working class at that time. I think that economism has a similar appeal. So as you said, people look for certain simplistic or simple explanatory frameworks for the world. And you know, today we live in a world that is dominated by very highly educated people who went to a small set of very good schools, and many of whom either took economics or were intimidated by economics because they're not very good at math and are afraid of numbers. And it has, you know, we, we live in, at least the center left, we live in a secular world where, you know, we don't, many people don't really agree with, you know, religious, for example, explanations of the world. And economics, I think, has taken, I mean, secular religion would be going a little bit too far, but it is certainly in the past 50 years has been, you know, compared to sociology, political science, other social sciences, it has been the kind of the dominant mode of explaining things. Um, so yes, I think that's partly because we want we want a mode of explaining things. And the the supposed rigor, I think, of economics has has made it more palatable to you know a well-educated audience in of in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Interesting. So your book came out in 2017, I believe. That's right. uh, January. Yes. Is that correct? Okay. Yes. Uh, which is, you know, now a couple of years ago, time flies. How has economism changed since then? And and specifically, how has each party's uh, relationship with economism changed since that time? Yeah, so that's that's a good question. And the timing, I think, is interesting. So I wrote the book thinking that, you know, there was a good chance that um, a Democrat would be president. And I wrote the book in part because the Democratic Party at the time um, was in the midst of a struggle, which we're still in, between what you might call the Bernie Sanders wing and the Clinton-Obama wing, right? Essentially between people who believe more in redistribution and helping, helping people get by, and a centrist wing which believes more, um, I don't want to put this in a pejorative way, more in the importance of market forces to generate prosperity, let's say. Um, and I wanted the book to contribute to that debate. Uh, then the 2016 election happened, Donald Trump became president, and to some extent that shifted, that did shift the political terrain considerably, particularly on the Republican side. Um, I guess that what I just said is pretty obvious. But economism, I would say, for the previous decades had been the, the least common denominator, the unifying glue of the Republican Party. So the Republican Party, as people have known for a long time, included anti-communists, um, the Christian conservatives, and the business elite, right? So, and they're not, there's some things that those groups, and, and libertarians, for example, right? So there's some things that those groups cannot agree on. But they all agreed on small government, low taxes, right? That was, that was kind of like, in my mind, that was a central plank of the Republican coalition. Now, mm -hmm. President Trump did not abandon that plank. I mean, there's certain, rhetorically, he's all over the map, of course, you know. Um, but if you look at what he did, he, he did stick to that plank. And he had essentially only one 
significant domestic policy achievement, which was a big tax cut, um, at least legislative achievement. He did a lot through other means. But, um, but it certainly became less central to the Republican identity, which we know today is, is much more concerned with xenophobia, racial resentment, and, and resentment of essentially of either rich or well-educated elites, um, I would say. So I think that, you know, in the, you know, kind of the period from, I don't know, 2000, 2000 to 2012, I would say the main differences between the parties were largely over economic policy, taxes. Um, well, there was also the Iraq war, but let's leave that aside for a second. But domestically, it was over economic policy. Now that, now that this, the debates, the, the, the battleground has, has shifted in various ways. Um, on the Democratic side, I think that, as I said, we're, we've been in this struggle between the left and the center for, for several years now. And economism, I think, plays an important part in this because it has largely been adopted, I would say, by the center, by the Clinton-Obama wing, as a way of, as a kind of condescending way of lecturing the Bernie Sanders wing about why we can't have nice things, as people sometimes say. So my best, my favorite example of this was when Diane Feinstein, um, a group of school children, literally like 15 or so, came to her office in the Senate and said, we want the Green New Deal. And she basically told them, well, we, we can't have the Green New Deal because we can't pay for it because of deficits, you know. Um, so I think that the the resort to economics has been a way for the center to say we can't have universal health care, we can't have, we can't uh, abolish student, we can't uh, get rid of student debt, we can't have free college, and so on. And it's partly saying we can't afford it, and it's partly saying that would create bad incentives. Right? For example, if we, if we have free college, then too many people will want to go to college, um, for example, which I find somewhat absurd. Um, but in any case, I think that that uh, this the idea that there are certain economic rules that are immutable and that we should shape our policy decisions according to those is that's one of the one of the battlegrounds I think within the Democratic Party today. Interesting. So, to clarify, your perspective would say that there actually is some. Um, some truth that we could spend on these programs and it wouldn't say have as many negative impacts as the center argues that there would be. Uh, yes, that that's what I think. I mean, you know, to take one example, I think again, the minimum wage is it's the most instructive example to use um, because there's been a ton of research about it and the typical counter arguments, because, you know, for example, um, Hillary Clinton was opposed to the $15 minimum wage until the in the middle of the campaign, she switched under pressure from the left. And the, the counter argument has always been, well, if you raise the minimum wage to $15, then as I said earlier, businesses will lay off workers instead. And as I said, there's been an enormous amount of empirical research on this topic. Um, and not everyone will agree with me, but I, but I would think most economists, most labor economists would say that the the, the near consensus of the research is that modest increases in the minimum wage have a very small effect on jobs, and are more, which is more than compensated for by the fact that people make more money and it pulls people out of poverty. 
And that's probably true up to about $15. I mean, certainly if we made the minimum wage $100, then other things would happen. Um, so this is an example where the minimum wage is a policy that many people think will help the working poor, I think will help the working poor. The counter argument is based on this economic model that says there's no free lunch, you'll just inc increase unemployment. And the empirical research seems to indicate that you can actually increase the minimum wage and there is, there is in a sense of free lunch. And I think that is true of a lot of the policies that are being, um, a lot of the left-wing policies that the, the center is, is, is resisting. Um, you know, another example would be, um, well, I, I should say a lot, of the, a lot of the arguments about why we can't have these things are related to um, the budget, basically, the budget deficit. And that's, that's an entirely different topic of, of kind of economic misunderstanding. But just to give one example, um, according to the, the research we have, if we had, say, universal pre-K, like from ages four to five, everyone goes to, pre to, to, to school, paid for in one way or another by the federal government, the long-term economic uh, benefits would be enormous. There are, I mean, it, and it, it stands to reason, there's research to back this up, but it also just stands to reason the most important years in which to affect people's aptitude are the, the earliest years. It, it's, it's almost obvious that, um, I mean, even if we couldn't pay for it, it would be better to start school at 14, sorry, at four, and lop a year off the other end, just because you get more impact <laughs> uh, when people are younger. And if you look at the impact on people's long-term productivity and earnings, and therefore on the taxes they would pay, this is just a good investment. Um, so the argument that we can't pay for it in this case is just essentially just short-sighted. So, you know, issues are complicated, and there are plausible arguments on both sides. But I think that um, often in the political realm, it's simpler to just say, oh, you don't know what you're doing. You don't understand economics. Um, that's You may think that you're helping poor people, but that will actually backfire, um, rather than getting into the, the details of the issues. Yes. Well, the issues certainly are complicated. Um, so you've, you've noticed, or perhaps we've noticed through studies, that there seems to be a shift of the person who traditionally voted on the left, uh, some are transitioning to the right. Yeah. Why, why is this in your view? I'm not sure anyone has a comprehensive explanation. <laughs> and certainly some of it, some of it I think is, well, let's just say there on the Democratic Party, there are two competing stories about this. One story is that it's basically racism. So one story is that this is the so-called white working class, and it's because of last place aversion. So last place aversion, I don't know if you know that phrase, but it's the idea that what people really want is they want someone they can look down on uh, because they don't want to feel like they're in last place in the social hierarchy. Mm. All right, so the idea, um, th again, this is one of the two explanations within the party, is that, um, is that poor white people are afraid of the idea that, I do not like the idea that, um, especially blacks, but also other non-white immigrants are essentially cutting in line ahead of them and getting ahead in society ahead of them. And they think that the government is facilitating this and, and that's bad. And therefore they're switching to the Republicans. The other 
story is that poor people used to vote for the Democrats because the Democrats represented their economic interests, because the Democrats were the party of labor and the New Deal and the welfare state and so on. And that since the 1990s, uh, the Democratic Party has drifted towards the center, has abandoned labor, has gotten in bed with first with finance and now with Silicon Valley. And um, if not if not the the creature of the rich has become, you know, a party of well-educated technocrats. Mm-hmm. So those are the two explanations. Eileen. I think both of them are true to varying extents. Um, I think I talk and write more about the second one. Um, not the, again, I think both of them are true. Um, but I think there is a, there is a, there are some people within the, the, the party who want to say it's all racism. We don't need to change our economic policies. And I think what I would say, and people like me would say is, um, racism is part of it, but we can't change our position on racial issues because it's just white, right? I mean, like, um, we have to be in favor of diversity and multiculturalism and immigration because it's just the white position to have. And if we want to attract poor people who are switching to the Republican Party, the only way to do it is to reaffirm our identity as the party of the working class. And certainly we won't get them all back. Um, Some of them switch to the Republican Party because of racial resentment. But if we actually gave people things like Medicare for all, um, we would get some of them back. And, and, that's, and, uh, and, and that's what we should be doing. So that's basically my position. It's obviously a, a complicated debate. It's been going on for at least five or six years now. Yeah. Well, and so perhaps this is the same question and it might be the exact same answer, which we can just kind of ignore it. But when thinking about the rise of Trumpism and the increase in radical politics, and especially the growing culture wars on both sides, fundamentally, what do you see as the driver underneath all of that? Um, so I'm going to cop out and I'll, I'll mention two things. Um, <laughs> okay. I don't think, I think it was made possible by growing inequality. I think that we live in a society where many people's economic outlook is pretty bleak. And it's because, although the economy has continued to grow modestly for the past 30 years, it's become increasingly apparent that the growth has not been shared equally and the vast majority is going to very rich people and most of the West is going to the top just 10%, basically going to like professionals who went to good schools and are now accountants, lawyers, doctors. Like they're not the 1%, but they're doing pretty well. And the statistics to back this up have been, you know, repeated ad nauseum, um, thanks largely to Thomas Piketty and a number of other economists. And that is a climate, I think, in which people are more prone to, um, first of all, sorry, to question the legitimacy of basically of the, the social order and the political system, and to be more... Uh, more easily swayed by the appeals of demagogues like like uh, President Trump. The second thing I will say is, and this is n- nothing to do with what we've been discussing earlier, but I, the second thing is basically, in one word, is Facebook. It's not just Facebook, it's also YouTube and, and other things like that. But I think, you know, 
Populist demagogues have been around for a long time, and there have been previous periods of national dissatisfaction, um, 1930s, 1970s, um, and but the information environment of the country was not one in which it was possible to create essentially an you know an alternative factual universe in which 25% of the country lives. Um, and so without just, I mean, I'll use, just say Facebook to represent all those, all those things, but without Facebook, I don't think, you know, President Trump would have had the impact that he has today, certainly. So, so I think, you know, I would say, you know, going inequality is kind of a precondition, precondition. One of the things I say is that you know there are always going there's always going to be a party of the rich there are always going to be demagogues there are always going to be populists and so obviously in the first instance you know we can blame them we can blame Donald Trump but to understand why they're able to be successful you know we have to look at what makes it possible for them to to be successful and yeah so I think inequality in Facebook <laughs> yeah. Have you, so I, I haven't read this book. I've just read book reviews by it of like getting the Cliff Notes version, but Walter Schiedel of um, Stanford University wrote The Great Leveler okay. and it's about inequality. And he, he looked back in the last 5,000 years and showed that it's never compressed other than um, war, revolution, state collapse, or plagues. Okay, <laughs> and so, but the you know then I think of the of the um, inequality in the U.S. in the '30s, and it began compressing before the war. So yeah. I don't know. I I would need to read the book to dive in a little deeper to some of the things that seem like outliers. But is he oh, making, go ahead. Is he making that statement on a global basis or within an individual society? Do you know? That's a great question. Um, I think it was between societies. Okay. Um, and I, I listened to a podcast when he was talking about it. He, I think he actually approached it because he was looking for, well, there must be explanation. There must be sometimes where inequality is compressed in like more healthy ways. And he wanted to find like some hope and optimism <laughs> and, my, and his book ends up being pretty dark because he can't really find it. Um, so do you, you know, the question is, do you see a way that we can reverse these processes and this cycle of inequality, or do we kind of just have to let it play out? Uh, well, the second is very chilling. Um, <laughs> so first, I will buy time for an answer by saying, so Thomas Piketty it has thought about this issue as well. And so he sees the entire period from the 30s to the 70s as a period of decreasing inequality throughout the West, basically in Western Europe and the United States. So the war, I mean, he says also war certainly is a major factor because when you just destroy all the assets that which people own, that will reduce inequality. Um, so that's one factor. But also he says after World War II, we had a period in which governments were willing to um, engage in high taxation and um, other measures, which essentially brought down inequality. So we had unionization. We had, um, as I said, we, we had high taxation. We had um, basically limits. We had 
Another factor we had is we had a social climate in, in the United States when major corporate leaders felt like they had a duty to society. So there, there are a number of factors. So I think um, it can happen in peacetime. As for today, it's a, you know, it's a two-part answer because on the one hand, certainly there are policies we could, we could have that would reduce inequality. We could have billionaires tax. We could have, um, you know, we could have universal pre-K, we could have free college and so on. Um, we could have more, more aggressive things. Um, and so the question I think, you know, then becomes political. Um, as I said earlier, um, the tendency of all policy debates is to become is to become political debates because it becomes a question of why why can't we why can't our society do this? Um, you know, right now we can't even get a can't even get a child tax credit, <laughs> you know, child support tax credit uh, through Congress. So I think the question is, you know, what what um, what political evolution might make it possible to have inequality reducing possibilities? And I'm not a, you know, I'm certainly not an, an expert observer of American politics. I think there are, but I will say at a high level, I think, you know, we have, we have kind of two, two very powerful political forces in the United States right now. And one of them is, you know, is the Trumpist right, certainly, which has harnessed, you know, it's harnessed the Christian conservatives. It's, it's harnessed a lot of the not so much the corporate business elite, but a lot of the kind of self-made billionaire uh, business elite and so on. And so that's one. But the other is the, you know, young people are more progressive today than, than ever. If you look at the, um, the, the, the differences in voting preferences by age group, it's astonishing. And it used to be, we would say, you know, college students are all liberals, but they'll all become, you know, once they get a job on Wall Street, they'll all become conservatives. And I'm not sure it's happening. I think that's for a number of reasons. One is extreme inequality. One is climate change, frankly. Um, so I think that, you know, the, the, the extreme, somewhat idealistic progressivism of the young is the other major political force. I think the the sad thing is that the Democratic Party is basically turning its back on it, right? The Democratic Party is orienting its policies around the same, the same, the same axes it has for the past for the past three decades, um, and has not gone all in on climate change or on student debt and and issues like that. That would really, I think, energize the youth vote. So, so I think, um, you know, I think climate change. I think, uh, I think. That I think harnessing and mobilizing, essentially the you know the the votes of of young people could potentially help shift the balance in our political system. Um, whether it'll be enough, I don't know. Mm -hmm. So preparing for this interview, I was reading a bunch of articles, and you know, you tell me if I'm reading into this too much, but it felt like there was a bit of a framing of uh, the left versus fascism something like that. Is that how you think about it? Like, is this accurate? I think, so I think fascism, um, I'm not comfortable, entirely comfortable with the word, um, but, but I think we all know basically what it represents in American society today, so that's fine. So I would say that um, 
you know, things have changed since I wrote Economism and even since Take Back Our Party. And at that time, you know, I thought basically the conflict is between kind of two images of American society, meaning in socio and economic terms, right? So one is just, we keep doing more of what we're doing now, which is that um, we have less and less government, we have less and less of a welfare state, which people get richer and richer, um, middle class just stagnates, right? Or we do something to help, actually help ordinary people. So I thought those were the kind of two versions of our future that I was um, seeing. I think, you know, since, uh, is it January 6th? Tomorrow. Uh, you know, since since a year ago, well, since the 2020 election, I think, you know, the uh, there's another dimension that has become apparent, which is more important, which is whether we are a democracy or not. And the the although the well the factors that will determine the outcome of that question are different from the ones that I have historically thought about and written about most, right? This is not so much an economic issue of economic policy. This has become a kind of a tactical political issue in which right now the problem is that Republican state legislatures have the power under the constitution to pretty much, I mean, they could actually just pass a law saying the legislature gets to choose the electors that is allowed by the constitution. None of them have taken that step because it would be too brazen, but instead they're essentially saying at every step of the way, the legislature can choose or replace the people who manage the elections. So that if Georgia comes down to 11,000 votes in 2024, it will be not that difficult for the Georgia legislature to flip that in a way that is at least procedurally legal. So um, I will say that, I mean, I think now this is the biggest issue we face as a country. And to some extent, the things I've written in the past about economics and economic policy just don't matter. And I say they don't matter because I'm not saying I was wrong. I still think that the rise of inequality is was a precondition for the rise of Trump. But it is too late, in a sense, it is too late for economic policy, for better economic policy to solve the immediate problem, which is, hmm. which is American democracy. Um, so... So I do think, um, you know, something versus fascism <laughs> is is um, the if you know if by fascism we mean the ability of um, one party to basically dictate the election, the outcome of elections. Um, I do think that is kind of the the issue on the table, but um, I, but I wouldn't say it's it's just the Bernie Sanders wing versus fascism, I guess at that point. Mm -hmm. I would, I mean, because I don't think it's a matter of, the main difference, you know, the main difference between the left and the center of the Democratic Party is about economic policy. And I don't think this is a question of economic policy anymore. I, I think there is more that, you know, President Biden and Merrick Garland could be doing. I'm not sure how much more. I mean, you know, in, under our system, the states are, are pretty much sovereign over a large set of issues, including this one, um, with narrow exceptions. 
Um, so there are a couple, apparently there are some theories by which the Justice Department could try to overturn some of these state laws, but it's not, it's certainly by no means a given. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, they could be doing more, um, but I don't, I don't, uh, I don't blame that on their economic uh, <laughs> beliefs. Mm-hmm. So if inequality was a precondition for the rise of Trump, isn't it possible then that a centrist left or progressive left demagogue sweeps the left party? Like, isn't there just as much risk on the left? Just because we haven't had it yet, it sounds like the conditions are there. You know, I can't say it's not possible. Um, I mean, at a high enough level of abstraction, I mean, theoretically, um, sure, you could imagine a a populist authoritarian like Trump, who, instead of talking about racial resentment, talked about kind of class resentment and something like that. Um, you know, people talk about this as the extremes meeting, right? Um, it seems highly unlikely in our current political configuration for, I guess, a number of reasons. I mean, I would, I think that, you know, the two-party system is, is, is still very powerful in this country, right? I mean, President Trump didn't start a third party; he took over the, the Republican Party. So the identities of the parties matter a lot, and the Republican Party has been drifting towards. Um, you know, the politics of racial resentment since the 19, late 1960s. So, um, whereas the Democratic Party has been very vocally, um, you know, in favor of diversity and multiculturalism since at least the 90s. Um, another thing that's happened is that the Republican Party the parties now are distinguished as at least as much on educational lines as on as on class lines. Um, and so I guess what I'm saying is that left-wing authoritarian populism is certainly a theoretical possibility, but the Democratic Party would be just completely inhospitable to it at the moment because of the way that the party divisions have evolved in the past couple of decades. And just to give one more example, I mean, because of climate change and because of COVID, the left has become, um, you know, part of the alignment is people's attitudes towards science. So left-wing socialists, to the extent that socialists existed in the United States, um, socialists might 50 years ago, not have any particular attitude towards science, but because of climate change and because of COVID, um, the left has, you know, the science anti-science um, divide has been completely um, it, um, politicized at this point. So, you know, so I'm not saying that simply being in favor of multiculturalism and being pro-science immunizes you against populist authoritarianism. But um, at this moment, I think that the, you know, the, the characteristics which the progressive left has adopted in this country do not 
at this moment do not seem to me that um, consistent with authoritarianism. I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess my concern is this last question. We're kind of wrapping up here. Um, so I'm going to breeze through a bit here, make a few assumptions, and you tell me if I'm completely wrong here. It sounds like you're advocating to, to, for, the, for the left to become more progressive, not necessarily more centrist. And my concern with that is the, the right is where it is and the left is where it is currently. And there's, there's a great danger that if both sides become increasingly radical in their own dimension, increasingly right, increasingly left, there's then no compromise and, and agreement, which there's already very little. And so I worry that you, you kind of, I put it in two hands of, there's one thing about winning elections for a given party, let's say the left, and there's one about just keeping the U.S. away from civil disorder. And I almost see them as maybe not, you maybe can't have both. I don't know. How do you weigh that when you think about trying to move one party further left, further away from the center? Um, so I have, I have two thoughts on that. Um, my first thought is that my opinion, and not everyone will agree with me on this, is that if you look at least at socioeconomic issues, the Republican Party, I think pretty much everyone would agree, has been moving to the right. Um, I think that until Bernie Sanders, until 2016, the Republic, Democratic Party was just moving to its right in its wake. So this is going to be a kind of a sophomore argument I'm, I'm going to make, but it's like telling Democrats that we, we can't move to the left because we have to um, allow for the possibility of bipartisanship is basically just capitulation, right? Like they move to the right, so we have to follow them is essentially um, what that is. And, you know, a similar thing is that, you know, people always talk about bipartisanship in the abstract. And, um, you know, when the Republicans have the votes, they don't engage in it at all. And the Democrats, we haven't really had the votes since 2009, right? Because right now we have a majority, but the majority depends on Joe Manchin, and Joe Manchin believes in bipartisanship. So um, so bipartisanship usually means um, Democrats ceding to the, you know, to Susan Collins or whatever Republican we can pick off. Right now, it means ceding to Joe Manchin, who's, in my opinion, is a Democrat in name only. Um, So, and this is still part of my first point. I think, you know, historically, if you look at how the conservatives became successful, it was by moving to the right and by attacking people of their own party. So this was something, you know, it was... Uh, people talked about it a lot in the 1990s about how the Gingrich hardliners would just, they would target moderate Republicans and they would primary them. And they said, basically, we don't care if we lose the seat in November. We just want to go with less moderate. And I feel like that was a successful strategy. And maybe we should think about that. So that's my first answer. My second answer is that, um, I mean, when it comes, to, this is why I said, I'm not, well, 
So when I wrote Economism and Take Back Our Party, I felt like, you know, the only thing that matters is the long term. And the only thing that matters is in the long term, changing essentially the, um, changing the landscape of what's possible, which means having a party with a clear identity um, as a party of ordinary people. Um, because I felt like kind of muddling through election to election, trying to just pick off swing voters was the reason we had no identity and was the reason we were losing working class voters, as we discussed a while back. Um, right now, I would have to admit the short term matters a lot because the alternative is, is another Trump administration in 2024. And so at this point, I would say that uh, this is probably the first, like I would not have said this about any election in the past, but at this point, like um, winning the next election matters a lot. Um, by which I mean 2024, we're going to lose, we're going to lose next year. We're going to, this year, we're getting crushed. I think that's, that's already baked in the cake. Um, and to that end, um, you know, I think the division right now is between people who want America to remain a democracy and people who don't care. And the people who want America to remain a democracy need as many allies as they can get. And if that includes Mitt Romney and Larry Hogan and Charlie Baker, that's fine with me at this point. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm obviously I'm not happy that one of the situation, but as I said earlier, I think, you know, the the survival of democracy kind of outweighs just the, the economic policy issues that I used to write about. So. Mm -hmm. Well, um, that's a question we're going to have to see going moving forward for sure. I think the next election, 2024, not necessarily the midterms, is going to be very interesting. Yeah. Um, we will definitely see the outcomes of that. But so, James... Thank you so much for coming on and sharing all your thoughts. If folks want to find more of your work, where can they find that? Um, so I'm I'm on Twitter at James Y. Kwok. I almost never use Twitter, but basically anything I write will be posted there. And I blog mainly on Medium these days. So that's one place to look. Okay, great. Well, James, you have a good rest of your day. And thanks again. Thank you. Take care. Listening to other YouTube channels, I hear a lot of the smashing the like button. I'd like to suggest to gently click it. It's going to be nicer on your computer and probably longevity for your technology anyway. So likely click that subscribe button, like, rate, and review. It is the best way to help us reach more audience, more people, and that way we can keep producing content every week. Make sure to drop a comment below who you'd like us to interview next, and we look forward to seeing you next week.